Thank you, uh, Wes, for the opportunity to come and speak. This has been a dream, a dream of mine for a long time to be able to come to the museum and talk. And this is a pinnacle of success for me. So I hope you enjoy the talk. And if you have questions, they're going to be passing out the cards and you can pass them, I guess, to the center aisle and I'll try and answer as many as I can. And the ones I don't like, I just won't answer. So, okay. So let's see if this is all going to work. Ah. So, Titan II, the few and the powerful. There are only 54 Titan IIs and three wings, and I'll go over which wings had them and the cities they surrounded. So, out of 1,054 missiles, that's not very much. So, that's the few. The powerful is the 20, uh, that the 54 missiles on deployment carried about 25% of the megatonnage of the weapons of the land-based cruise missiles and over 10% of the total megatonnage that was able to be targeted against the enemy. So they were the powerful part. And we're going to be going through a little bit about what it meant to target a silo and a little bit of the history of why uh, Titan was actually ever uh, service, put into service. Uh, one of the things I did as a researcher was try and collect as many photographs as I could. And while it may be obvious that each one would be uh, easily identified, it's not really true because some of them are reversed. Um, some of the, sometimes they're in black and white and the color isn't useful. In this case, and, and actually in all cases, they all have a very distinctive fingerprint with the exhaust plume. And so I was able to quickly identify this as the B-52 airframe. It was launched from the 395-C at Vandenberg Air Force Base by the 381st Strategic Missile Wing on 7 August 1975. An interesting thing is the Air Force doesn't really have, on each launch they were supposed to have a unique photograph of the missile on the cover of the launch report. And often they used one missile for all their launch reports. So trying to collect all of the airframe photographs uh, has turned out to be impossible but maybe that's not the most important thing on the planet. Okay, here's what we're going to talk about. Why Titan I and Titan II? The site considerations, construction, targeting of Titan II. And this is the museum. If you've been, how many people here have been to the Titan Missile Museum? All right. Okay, the rest of you, shame on you. You have to go. Um, and if you let me know, I'll give you my email at the end of the talk. I'll give you your own personal tour. I, my record's five hours in the silo, so I won't do that to you, but... It's possible to spend that much time. And then target two, um, Titan II target coverage. What did the airframe, what did Titan II actually target over in the Soviet Union? And then a little bit about the end of the era of Titan II. So why Titan I and Titan II? Well, Atlas was the mainstay for a while, and then they came up with the idea, um, General Schriever came up with the idea that Atlas, they needed competition, because if you just had a single source building a missile, uh, you know, they could start doing things their way and not really worrying about cost. So one of the many reasons was they needed competition. So they had uh, Martin Marietta at the time uh, bid and got the, uh, the, the contract for Titan I, which was a true two-stage missile. Back when they built Atlas, they didn't know if they could actually stage at altitude, whether it was the missile, would, the engine would successfully ignite. So the people at the Martin demonstrated that could happen. So this is a true two-stage missile. Approximately 98 feet tall. The range, the range was the same as, as Titan II. I had a Mark IV warhead, a Mark IV reentry vehicle with a W38 warhead. Cryogenic oxidizer, which meant it had RP1 as a fuel. So they had to, to fuel this and they had to raise it to the surface and put the oxidizer in. 
So that was one of the drawbacks, just like with Atlas. This was only silo lift. Atlas had on the pad, they had the coffin, they had the buried coffin, and they had silo lift. In each case, it took additional time to load the propellants, and that meant they were exposed for that much more time to enemy attack. So they were only deployed, 54 were deployed from 62 to 65, so three years. That's a lot of money spent for little deployment. And, you know, in hindsight, you could say that was a waste of money. I, I tried to write my book, and I tried to talk about Titan from a there-and-then standpoint, because hindsight's a wonderful thing. All kinds of things changed. You can say what should have been done. At the moment, you don't have that foresight. So we moved to Titan II. This is a B-69. I don't remember the, uh, the date. Uh, actually, I think later on I do discuss the date. Uh, it's 108 feet tall, range of same 5,500 miles. If you read some of the learned uh, documents, they talk about ranges in the 9,000-mile range. Well, they tried to launch a Titan II with a Mark IV warhead. It was built to actually handle the uh, Mark IV reentry vehicle, like on Titan I, and that would have had a range that would have taken it over South Africa and into the, in the ocean, but it didn't make it. So they had a, st a stage two failure. The operational range, the range that the Air Force used in their calculations, was 5,500 nautical miles. It had a hypergolic propellant. That means they ignite on contact. So you didn't have to have any kind of an ignition system. They could be stored for years and years and years, and they were in several of the airframes stored for many years. And so you didn't have to raise them to the surface to fuel them. The, the um, countdown was very short. So basically, hidden in a silo, protected from nearby blast, these were an almost instantaneous response versus the Atlas and the Titan I. 54 were deployed, and that was from 63 to 86. They were meant to be deployed for between 7 and 10 years and then phased out. But they, were, they carried such a large warhead and carried so much of the relative megatonnage of the, pro, of the uh, uh, triad that they were kept, kept, being, uh, kept in the program for many, many years. And we'll discuss, when I talk about the end of the era, we'll talk about some reasons why they were removed from service. So where do you cite a missile? I had a, the opportunity to talk to Senator Goldwater uh, many years ago and asked him about citing were there political considerations. And he said there weren't, but I mean, I, I've got to believe that with the millions of dollars spent on citing these things, it didn't hurt to have Senator Goldwater in, in, on your side of the fence wanting the missiles in Arizona. Plus, they had to be near a SAC base, so Davis-Monthan, Little Rock Air Force Base, McConnell Air Force Base, in Wichita and Little Rock in Arkansas, existing SAC base, so no problem there. Existing railroad infrastructure, this was a very intensive building uh, program, so you had to have in place already the infrastructure. I don't know how many of you have been to the Tucson area, let alone to the museum, but Wilcox, which is a very small town about an hour and a half east of Tucson, wanted the base because there's absolutely nobody out there, but they had no infrastructure, so they didn't get it. And then, nor did they have a nearby SAC base. Avail readily available skilled workers. You think, well, we can find the workers we need. Well, you needed thousands of workers, and they had to be pretty well skilled. So L.A., the uh, coast of California, had a lot of available workers, welders, concrete, stuff like that. So that was good for the Tucson area. Suitable soil conditions. Uh, some of the silos did have water incursion problems, but for the most part in the Tucson area, the sites were easy to dig. In Little Rock, they had to actually do hard rock um, drilling. And it was some of the sites took a lot, much longer to build than others. Away from coastal regions, 
Uh, actually, the, bay, the facility that, that uh, Denver, uh, Lockheed, not Lockheed, Martin Marietta had to promise to move their Titan II fabrication facilities into the center of the country, into the Denver area, because they were worried about submarine attack, uh, missile attack. So the sites has, had to be away from the coastal regions. Population and flight path, um, obviously, when these things take off, it's, it's World War, in my opinion, it's World War III. So I think the least thing you have to worry about is an airframe, first stage, exhausted, falling down on your house. But they did worry about that. And so you had to have the flight path be appropriate. And for uh, the Tucson missiles, the Davis-Monthan missiles, the flight path was out over the Catalinas. So it actually went over most of Tucson. But at that time, there wasn't much of Tucson. So. Then political considerations, I just I mentioned at the beginning with uh, Senator Goldwater. So one of the fascinating things I found, everybody knows about the three wings at 18 missiles apiece, Davis-Monthan in Tucson, Little Rock in Little Rock, Arkansas, and McConnell in Wichita. But they don't know that for a while, missiles were on alert at the, the Titan silos at Vandenberg. Now, for some reason, most maps north points upwards. In this case, there's north. So this is the coast of California. And they had one site that was virtually on the beach, and then B and C were, were out, uh, up uh, out of the water, the water table. So these three silos, at some point in a two-year two period, were not only used for the testing, uh, test launches of the missile, but were used actually on alert. Then we have Little Rock, Arkansas. All the missiles are arrayed north of the city. Uh, here's the base itself. Here's Little Rock. And then these are the 18 silos. They were in two, wing, uh, two squadrons of nine missiles apiece. This is McConnell. And instead of being north of the city, they were east and west. And so there's McConnell. Here's Wichita. And then the, air, uh, the bases. And here's Davis Monthan. Uh, interesting, there were lots of interesting interconnections between my first book for the Navy and this one. I turned out George Montan, the nephew of the Montan that the base is named after. I heard about him as being in the regulars program. He was an aircraft carrier pilot. And I heard it from a, a commander of his. And so I didn't know he was in Tucson. He said, oh, yeah, he lives in Tucson. I lived in Tucson at the time. And so my wife was thrilled because I didn't have to travel very far to go interview him. So I thought, great, you know, I'm just going to get in the car, go up there. So I did what I was always taught to do. You don't park in someone's parking uh, driveway. You park outside, right? Well, his wife, as, we're getting inter as I'm starting the interview, his wife pulls out and rams my car. <laughs> so all of a sudden, this very low expense trip turned into what could have been expensive, except her Mercedes. Now, I didn't own a Mercedes. I had a Nissan Stanza van. And for those of you that know what that was, it was an interesting vehicle. But her bumper meshed perfectly with mine, and there was no damage. So, but an interesting, uh, interesting relationship between the two, between the two books. Couldn't be much different between a Navy missile and an Air Force missile. Okay, so if you've been fortunate to go to the Titan Missile Museum, you have been down into the various parts of the silo. If not, this is the access portal. Come down these flights of stairs. It's not protected from nearby blast. You come through two blast doors that are interlocked. You then go through two more blast doors to the Launch Control Center, which is a three-story building. It's only eight feet below the surface. And I looked into uh, with a professor from Pennsylvania about uh, hardening nuclear uh, missile system structures. And, you know, for the amount of damage it was going to take to damage the missile, this would have already been toast. 
So it, it, it's always, it, I'm, I'm a fine biochemist, so I don't know really anything about construction, but it always surprised me that very little would damage this compared to how much it would damage this, but yeah, anyway. Then there's a, a long cableway. You go through these two doors again. There's a long cableway that comes down to the missile. At level two at the museum, you can walk around. There's a viewing window here. You can see the missile in the, in the silo. And the launch uh, control, the, the uh, silo closure door is partially open because back when the museum was being formed, we were still uh, in the Cold War situation with the Soviets. And they wanted to know by satellite that they could inspect that the missile was still in the hole because they were very worried we were going to close the door and put a missile in and make it work. So we had to cut holes in the reentry vehicle and holes in the, in the missile itself. And it, it seems to me, it always seemed kind of stupid because you've ruined a perfectly good airframe by cutting a hole in it. But I'm not in charge of the national defense, so, which is probably a good thing. Okay, so here's an example of a typical bathtub excavation. They had to ask, anybody who's in construction knows you just, if you have to build a building, you just don't dig a hole and put the building in. You have to have room around it to work. So these are huge excavations in the relatively soft dirt uh, and soil conditions in, in Tucson. This is the phase one construction. I'm not going to go through all of construction slides I have because one, you'd be bored to death and we'd be here for hours. But I find this fascinating because here's the control center, LCC, Launch Control Center. This is the access portal. They haven't put in the, the uh, uh, long cableway. And then this is the beginning of the, uh, the silo. And this is all in that bathtub structure. And if you, well, I'm too close to it now. You can see this, the various vehicles and truck and a large crane here. So it kind of gives you a scale for the, uh, the enormity of the project. And these were all, all 18 were being built here and at Little Rock and at McConnell, uh, essentially simultaneously. I love this photo because you get an idea of the, this is a box girder support for the 740 ton silo closure door. And to put it to scale, here are some workers. I just, <laughs> it fascinates me. That's just, that's huge. But it has to support a 740 silo, uh, ton silo closure door, and it has to isolate the movement of the door. If there's a nearby blast and that door is compressed by air shock, that has to be isolated from the silo itself. Otherwise, you're going to damage the missile. So that was one reason for these large box girders. Blast doors have always been a fascination of mine because of the misinformation we had from a former crew member from Little Rock told everybody when they were making the tours, uh, tour guides uh, manual that these were filled with concrete, which made no sense to me. Uh, they're, they're half inch or, or thicker plate steel. Why would you fill it with concrete? They're three ton doors. So I took the plans up to a, a steel jobber in Tucson and I, I just wanted to know because nowhere in the plans that we have, the blueprints, did it say anything about steel, uh, anything about concrete. So I took up the plans, we did the calculations and sure enough, this is just I-beams welded together with face plates of steel, and it's just steel. There's no concrete. But if you look here, you can see these little dots. Those looked like they might be where concrete was put in. And so I think Tzak, the, the young, uh, gentleman in question, just made the assumption that was what happened. But you can look at the floor. I'm 6'3". I can walk through this without any trouble. These doors can be open and closed with your finger. They're that well balanced. But you can see the depth of the floor and the depth of the ceiling to protect the uh, blast lock from nearby blast. This is what the museum looks like now. Um, site 571-7. 
new building, relatively new building. And you can see the silo here, silo closure doors partially open. We have the viewing window here and then some propellant trailers and, and uh, other items for display. We actually have a Huey here, too, that was used to support the uh, bringing the crews to the uh, bases that were the farthest away. This is the above ground soft tank, 100,000 gallon tank. They had a deluge system in the silo that could be used to put out fires and flood the, the silo base if they needed to. And this, that water up in the soft tank was, it's called a soft tank because a nearby blast would damage it. Okay, the Titan II timeline. Construction began at the 390th in Tucson on 6 December of 60, and it ends in, at the 308th on 26 March 63. So in essentially three plus years, uh, well, actually more like two and a half years, I guess, they, um, they built all 54 silos and it was an amazing thing because they hadn't finished the testing of the missile, but it was the concurrent concurrency program that uh, General Schriever had come up with where we're going to make it happen so that when the silos are ready for the missile, the missile has been tested and ready to be put in. We're not going to wait for the missile to be tested and then build the silos. So the alert posture began on 31 March 63 and it ended at the 308 on 18 March 87. The missiles were not meant to be in the hole for 24 years. As I said earlier, they were really supposed to be there about five to seven years, maybe 10 at the most. They were designed for that. And the fact that it's always impressed me, the design that they were designed for longer and, and did very well. They, they really did um, hold up very well. Some people have accused me of being an ad for Lockheed Martin. I just think they did a good job. So time on alert depends on the strategic missile wing in question about 20 to 23 years. Uh, so, now we get to what would happen if you wanted to target Site 571-7. And you gotta remember, for those in the audience who may have been in the uh, strategic targeting field in the Air Force, I apologize for my somewhat perhaps naive viewpoint on this, but it's, it still works for me. Um, nuclear weapons effects, obviously there's air bursts, surface bursts, and subsurface bursts. When they were developing the W-53, for uh, the Air Force, for bombers, a B-53 or warhead is a W-53, they considered making it a, a, a terrain, terriblistic, where it enter the ground and go deep and then blow up. But they decided after a while not to do that. So they never actually tested that function. So subsurface burst wasn't really a question for, for our attack on, on uh, missiles, on Soviet missiles, at least by our, our missile base, missile force. Targeting options you could destroy by a direct hit, destroy by an overpressure damage situation, or destroy by burying the silo. So, airburst. The definition of an airburst is the weapon that's exploded at an altitude, altitude below 100,000 feet. The fireball at maximum brilliance does not touch the surface. There's little or no crater, cratering, so shock effects are, are a result of the air blast overpressure hitting the surface, as well as obviously the, the heat and the radiation. A one megaton weapon has a fireball with a maximum expansion of 5,700 feet, so airburst would then be 2,800 uh, feet above the surface. The results you'd be looking for with the silo, with an air blast, with the silo closure door becomes inoperative above 300 PSI overpressure, and the blast doors are also inoperative above 300 PSI overpressure at the surface. That pressure, actually, you think, so they're 35 feet or so below the surface. How could 30 PS, 300 PSI affect them? 
Well, I was curious about that, and we had a lot of the design documents at the museum. And as a volunteer historian, I had not a whole lot else to do some days, and so I'd go look through the blueprints and design documents. And I found what was very interesting. What they did was they calculated what would happen if, through a very small door, a 300 PSI overpressure wave came through and down into the uh, access portal. And it would not echo, but the pressure waves would, would build on each other. And by the time they got down to the, the actual style, uh, blast doors, it would be at about 1,000 PSI. And that's what they were built to withstand at the face of the door. This is what the actual uh, W, it was a TX-49, TX-46, WX-53. The X means experimental and the T meant uh, they were thinking about making it terribleistic. This is the series hardtack shot, oak shot, and 28 June 1958. This is misidentified in, in Hansen's book on nuclear weapons. I didn't know that. I was told by an acquaintance. And he said, contact this guy up at uh, Sandia base. And so I contacted him. And about the time he sent me this photograph was about the time they had, uh, there was a Chinese scientist extraction, a uh, scientist there that they were accusing of espionage. So I got this in a plain brown envelope with no identification on it. But it's, uh, and I'm sorry, I don't have any kind of thing down here to scale it, but that's a, that's a pretty big boom. Okay, so how do we play the game of trying to figure out what would happen to, to the Titan silo if it was attacked? Well, I decided to use uh, the, these three ranges of, of weapon sizes because that's what the Air Force had done in earlier uh, documents I'd read. So we're going to be looking at the 300 PSI zone diameter for two, five, and 30 megaton airburst weapons. So figuring the target, instead of saying you had to target the silo, because my point is you didn't really have to target the silo, we're using as the ground zero to be this intersection. So a two megaton weapon going off at optimum airburst air height would have a 300 PSI contour here. So basically, it doesn't affect the silo. And there we go. So now a five megaton gets closer. You can over more than double the size of the weapon, but that doesn't double the size of the, the, the zones. It's, it's more of a, I think it's a one-third, a yield to the one-third um, representation. So we're still, you, know, you, you could say you're still okay if it's only a five megaton weapon. So if the accuracy is this bad, this is about a mile away, 5,000 feet, if that's as good as your CEP is for your weapon, you're going to need something bigger than a five megaton bomb. There we go. So this is a 30 megaton. Now I can see all I need to do is put a 30 megaton weapon somewhere this far away from the silo. So I don't have to be very accurate and I'll destroy the silo without digging it out of the ground, without burying it. So to me, not a weapon, weaponeer person, uh, seems the best way to do this is just use airburst. Surface and subsurface burst options. Basically, uh, surface and shallow underground bursts are defined in which either the fireball or the hot, high-pressure gases intersect or break through the Earth's surface. Cratering effects in the integrity of the silo. There's the actual physical displacement of the silo closure door, displacement of the launch control center or cableway so they couldn't get to the missile, to, the signal couldn't get to the missile to launch it. Eject a layer greater than six inches. That used to be, in, in many of the Air Force documents I came across, that was a six-foot number. 
Well, that didn't make sense to me because when the silo closure door opens, it opens from, it opens from the uh, nose cap back about four feet and then exposes the silo. Well, if you had six feet of soil on that and you started moving it, that soil would cascade into the, into the silo and damage the missile. So six feet made no sense, but the Air Force never does anything wrong. So, of course, I couldn't figure, out, figure it out. Then I, talk, I found the guys who were involved in designing the silo closure door. And I mentioned this six foot and they said, well, look for this particular document and you'll find the answer. So I did find the document in our collection and it's six inches. So six inches became six feet and that was promulgated through the literature. But six inch layer, it doesn't seem like much, but if you put that over the size of the silo closure door, it represents quite a bit of weight and uh, that would keep the door from opening. And overpressure above 300 uh, PSI would also prevent the silo closure door from opening. So this is kind of craters you can look for in a, in a way. You have options, near surface, surface burst, shallow depth of burst, deeply buried, which we wouldn't have done, and optimum. And then this is a subsidence crater if you were going to uh, do um, excavation with nuclear weapons, which I always thought was a really weird idea. They had atoms for, I think it was atoms for peace, Eisenhower, and they were going to use nuclear weapons to build a new Panama Canal. Okay, so it's going to be radioactive for how long? I mean, that, that didn't make sense. But like I said, I'm a plant biochemist, and that's probably a good thing. Okay, this is just the detail of a crater. Now, most people think, oh, the crater. So it's, it's, the, it's the hole I have to worry about. Well, it isn't the hole. And that's important if you want to just excavate the, the launch control center. But more important is this plastic zone and this rupture zone. It's much larger than the crater. And, and this is where the ground deforms. This is where it permanently deforms by cracking, so that would destroy the silo. And this is where it's plastic, where it moves enough to, to damage the silo. So it seemed to me that that would be another way of getting to, the, to a, a silo. So here's this crater diameter for a 2, 5, and 30 megaton surface burst. There's the, it's going to take a while to say it, but that's the uh, 2 megaton. No, there we go. And there's the 5 megaton. And there's the 30 megaton. So cratering, you're going to have to be pretty accurate to get the actual crater to excavate the launch control center of the silo. So, okay, what was the accuracy of the weapons back then? A Titan II had, uh, if you took all the tests together, threw out the missiles that they threw out, as one does with statistics that are considered not, not valid tests, its accuracy was in the neighborhood of 0.5 to 0.75 nautical mile CEP. The best one was 0.2. And that's right up there with Minuteman. A lot of times the Minuteman people will say, oh, Minuteman was much more accurate. Not really. Minuteman 1. Minuteman 3. Oh, yeah, really accurate compared to Titan 2. Okay. So now we go to, well, maybe not. Okay, plastic zone. Now it's getting a little bit bigger. Here's the 2 megaton. Here's the 5 megaton, and there's the 30, me uh, 30 megaton. So now the plastic zone is getting close, but it's still not really going to cause the damage to the silo. I, I would imagine by now the silo is in pretty sad shape if the plastic zone is this close. But still, in terms of in my naive way of looking at it, if this radius, if this diameter isn't touching the, the launch complex, then the launch complex is basically okay still. So let's go to the one one that I think really would have been the way to do this. 
and that's the six-inch debris. Now we're looking at, for a two-megaton weapon, look how large the debris diameter for the ejector for six inches is. Five megaton, and then here's the 30 megaton. Now, were the Soviets targeting us with 30 megaton weapons? I don't know. But five megatons close enough for government work. So, so to me, when you talk about the accuracy of the, air, of the missiles and, and would they, they hit the silos, could they target all the different silos and the footprints of the different silos? Okay, you know, I'm not going to argue that's not a, something you need to know. But you don't need to be that accurate. I mean, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. You know, this thing's, this thing's going to do the job as a surface burst with all the ejecta lay, uh, falling onto the silo closure door and stop the Titan from, from opening. Now, how close were the silos? They were 7 to 10 miles apart for just these reasons. They didn't want them too close together or they could take out more than one silo at a time. Titan 3, excuse me, Titan 1 had three silos in close proximity because of the infrastructure for the liquid oxygen uh, oxidizer. They couldn't afford to put liquid oxygen generating plants in, in three separated silos. Okay. Last, well not lastly, but almost the last. We have target to target coverage. This was estimated for 1980. I came across a book, the Soviet military strength in 1980. I came across this book. It was a government-issued book, but I, didn't, I wanted to be sure that I didn't violate any copyrights. So I looked at the author, and I, can't, I think his name was Stephen Collins. And it said he was from Virginia. So I said, this is pre-internet days. So I said, well, you know, I'll just go and start looking up Stephen Collins around in the Virginia area. And first phone call I made was Stephen Collins, the author. And I said, you know, you don't know me from Adam. I'm writing this book about Titan missiles, and I wanted to use some of your documents. And he said, one, it's, go it's a government printing office. You can use it. But if you'll send me a copy of your book, then that would be even better. So that was a pretty good deal. <laughs> so these are, uh, these are reasonable maps. Uh, it's, it's, it's the Soviet Union back in the day. And you can see these are the core areas of major industry. Here's Moscow, Leningrad. Uh, we've got these major areas of industry. That was one thing that would be targeted. And here's the, at the time, where the different missile bases, the uh, IRBM, MRBM, and the ICBMs were located. So I thought, well, that's great, but how am I going to figure out how far the Titan missiles, I'd have a globe. You can put a piece of string from, tight, from Tucson and run it over the globe and see where they'd hit, but that's a little hard to put in a book. So I called Cooper Aerial, which is a company I'd worked with before on other projects, and they said, we can't do the map. We can't get our computer program to go over the pole. We're not a targeting company. We're an aerial survey company. But I, we know a guy who's worked at the U of A that can do this for it, University of Arizona. So I called him, and I told him my problem. He said, oh, David, that's no problem. I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a, a tour of the Titan Missile Museum if you give me these, do these maps for me. He said, ah, no problem. So he sent me a CD with these maps on it. And the maps, if I printed them out, were this big because he's a, he's a survey kind of guy. So they have big maps. So I had to shrink them down, but I was able to shrink them down. And I think that's actually kind of pretty myself, but I guess maybe it's kind of warped. Um, so here's Moscow. Uh, I don't even know how to pronounce it. Here's Vladivostok. I believe this is Kazakhstan, and so this is Mongolia, and there's China. So this is the target coverage for those two to three missiles that were on, on alert at Vandenberg. And if you remember, there was only a couple of missiles here, 
and the cluster of missiles here, which is within range. So basically, Vandenberg, even though it only had the three missiles, covered all the targets. This is McConnell. So McConnell's here in the middle of the country. And it covers even better. It doesn't cover much in China, but China didn't have much at the time of Titan II. And they didn't, want it. They didn't need to cover it because they had uh, submarine-launched missiles that could cover China. There's Little Rock. Wait a minute. Did I miss? No, I covered them all. Okay. So now we're just quickly reviewing this again. So we're looking down here at one area. This little blip of land here has a missile base system. And then in between uh, Caspian and, and uh, I know I, Black Sea, there's another base here. And the core areas again. And so here's the combined coverage. So you put all of them together. And you've covered what we're looking for. Here's the area between the Caspian and Black Sea. That's covered. That little dent down into, uh, maybe that isn't covered. Maybe that was down here. But for the most part, the uh, Titan, silo, Titan missiles covered everything in the Soviet Union. Now, obviously, Minuteman did too, and so did the, the submarine-based missiles. But the point was, Titan carried a large warhead. It was four times the size of the one on Titan. Titan II carried a large warhead, four times the size of the one on Titan I. Um, I don't usually give the yields. Uh, I do know, I do believe I have an authoritative source on the yields, but um, I've never seen it declassified. And I like writing books for the Air Force, so I figured I'd just be safe and say it was a big one. Um, but you can see the coverage was complete. And... And for the, at the day, in the day, uh, that was going to do the job. It was a single large warhead. They never merved it or did anything like that. They talked about it was going to be too expensive. But it was built to, to be a city buster. And, and it was admitted to be that way. And, and that's how nuclear wars fought. Okay, so the end of an era. How am I doing on time? Wow. That's almost perfect. <laughs> wow. Okay, end of an era. Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. A lot of people think the SALT-1 treaty called for the elimination of Titan II, and it did not. You can read it. It doesn't say anything about Titan II. It just talks about heavy, the heavy weapons, the heavy missile, uh, heavy warheads. It implies that you want to get rid of your heavy warheads, but it doesn't say Titan, and that's been hard to drill into the heads of the Titan Missile Museum volunteers. SALT-2 caused the Titan system to be... Uh, to be deactivated. Well, that was in the 70s, and it wasn't deactivated until much later. So what happened between the 70s and, deact and the strategic modernization program? Two really nasty accidents. The Rock, Kansas accident was uh, human error. What happened was they didn't put a filter in, in where they're supposed to, and an O-ring slipped out of, that was supposed to seal the filter, slipped out, and got into what's called a poppet valve. I don't know if you know, probably don't know much about valves, but this is a spring-loaded valve that is built to be a, like a check valve. But if you have a, a Teflon O-ring for keeping it from closing all the way, you get an oxidizer leak. And so you're supposed to take the, the valve off slowly, in, in proper clothing, off slowly. You just take a couple of turns, see if it's leaking, take another couple of turns, see if it's leaking. Well, the guys who are doing it were in a hurry, human error, and they just backed the whole thing off and out gushed this oxidizer. And so it ruined the silo. 
they did uh, decide to spend money to fix it. And about the time they finished fixing it, uh, they deactivated But what they did do for tests with the, silo, with the uh, American satellites, reconnaissance satellites, is they put a big cross at the bottom of the silo because there was no missile in it. And they were actually able to photograph that and verify that they could see the cross indicating there was no missile in the silo. I got a call out of the middle of nowhere, again, pre-internet, about uh, that. And I found the guy who was in charge of the rebuilding of the silo. And he had all kinds of great documentation. And I've got photographs down at the museum that actually raise the hair on the back of your head. It's the back of your neck. It's just some of the stuff is... There were places where the silo was so, all the metal was etched away, and the only thing there was a layer of paint. So if you stepped on the paint, you would go right down into the silo. Now the, uh, the propellants were unsymmetrical dimethylhydrazine, which is not good for your liver, and nitrogen tetroxide, which is really not good for your liver or your lungs. And when it meets, uh, is mixed with uh, water, it forms nitric acid, which concentrated nitric acid is not good for anything except dissolving metal. Okay, the second accident and the one that this caused a lot of uh, problems because even though only uh, one person was killed, um, a lot of areas had to be excavated, excavated, <laughs> evacuated uh, because of the spill and the resulting cloud. Uh, Damascus accident was actually much more famous. And I remember being in Tucson. We'd moved to Tucson and, uh, in 19, December of 1979. And I'd driven by the silo, and, and this turned out to be the museum. I was hoping that one day I could maybe go into the silo. Five years later, I was given tours. Well, seven years later. But anyway, I remember reading about this. and not, I didn't know anything about the silo, the missile at the time. So I thought this was really sad, but I had no idea what was going on. And what happened there, again, was human error. The gentlemen involved were a propellant transfer team. They were in a hurry. They had repressurized the tank with nitrogen, and it had, it's, the nitrogen dissolves into the nitrogen tetroxide, so you have to repressurize the, the tank. And they did that, and it was still leaking. So they came, and they were getting ready to unscrew the, uh, the, uh, umbil- the um, propellant line, and they dropped a nine-pound socket. Now, you know, the nine-pound socket so- wrench is about this big around. It's just a typical socket for a socket wrench. Well, they were supposed to be attached by lanyard, to the individual. So if it dropped, it wouldn't drop all the way to the bottom of the silo, which is what it did. And it bounced. And they did tests later. I talked to the individuals involved in this accident investigation. And they said they dropped more than one socket to see what happened when it hit the launch ring, the thrust mount. And every time they did it, it bounced into the silo and would have caused no damage. What happened there was it hit and bounced into the missile. And the Martin Marietta people figured out it cut a hole about so big. So that's maybe a half an inch on the side, so a quarter inch square, and that started leaking the UDMH, unsymmetrical dimethylhydrazine. And over the course of time, that, that heated up and caused eventually an explosion that blew the 740-ton silo closure door off 1,000 feet. The warhead blew the second stage out of the silo, had a warhead on it, but, because what are they? They're nuclear weapons. They have warheads on them. But... It had the fail-safe mechanisms in it, and it came nowhere near to detonating. And they found that actually some of the, the rescue people were walking over the, the, the um, warhead itself. Uh, it, it had shattered. The reentry vehicle had shattered. So you have a, a W50, you have a B-53 out in, on display. And that's pretty good size. So you can imagine stepping over that. They thought they were stepping over a hot water heater. 
So it was, it was hot in a sense. There was no radiation leakage, but uh, I did actually come across a photograph of it. But, uh, and the actual damaged warhead, if you go to the National Atomic Museum before they moved it into downtown Albuquerque, the National Atomic Museum was on Kirtland, and just across the street was the Department of uh, Defense Nuclear Agency. And so I knew some people over there, and I said, you know, um, it'd really be cool if you just let me come in. I'll close my eyes. I just want to look at the, the warhead from Damascus. And they just laugh and say, doesn't work that way, David. So anyway, okay, so these very uh, high-profile accidents, uh, Senator Dole, um, I think Daniel Glickman from Kansas, very involved in, in stirring the nest uh, about getting rid of Titan. And then uh, President Reagan came in and wanted to do the force, strategic force modernization program. And if you looked at the treaty, if they got rid of those 54 heavy weapons, they could put three submarines with 60 missiles apiece into the force without upsetting any agreement, any treaty. So the Navy's all for that. And the Air Force is thinking, you know, these are getting expensive. People really don't like them anymore. We have other weapon systems coming online. So that was that all all this added up to the demise of Titan. So how do you destroy a silo? Well, one way, and if you if you can I don't know if you can see these are tires. Automobile tires. They they covered the silo with automobile tires after they put in all the explosives, thinking that would contain the explosion. As you can see, it didn't. Not only that, they had to go collect the tires. So I'm told that was quite an event to watch, and you got to see that 18 times around uh, Tucson. Now, why did, what did they end up doing? It's a very interesting thing. You look at this document, and you think, oh, man, they had to do all this work. Well, they ended up not doing a lot of it because it was just too prohibitive and cost prohibitive, and the Air Force decided that who cared. What they did do, the only thing they really did do was fill this air, um, air inlet to the silo. These were kept open. The, the blast doors were tack welded, and if you know what tack welding means, that basically, depending on who's a tack welder, you can take a crowbar and pop it open, which many people who bought the silos did. They put this cap on. All of them have this cap, and this is, I don't remember the dimensions, but it's big. It's a concrete cap, and that closes off the silo. The silo was supposed to be filled with rubble. Most of them weren't, and as, as you can see, all the work levels are open. So... I know a guy, and I don't remember his name now. I'm not my closest of friends. He's a dentist that works on call. And you can make some serious coin being a dentist on, uh, not a dentist, a pharmacist on call. I mean, some serious money. This guy makes money per hour that I can only dream of as a plant biochemist. So what did he do? He bought a silo, and he puts this enormous house right over the access portal. So when he has a party, you too can go down with your beer and sit in an LCC of a Titan II missile system. I don't think he's going to make this into a swimming pool because that's an awful lot of water in, in the desert. But, yeah, it's Eric. Eric is his first name. Um, I was invited out to the open house and had a, something else I was doing. And a friend of mine went and he said, unbelievable. The house is just enormous. And it's on top of a tight LCC. I, I'm trying to convince my wife to let me buy one of the uh, uh, surplus RVs, but she won't let me do it. So. <laughs> Okay, so what happened to the airframes? Well, if you count them, there are 39 sitting here. First stage, second stage, engine sets and RVs. And 
what they did. So 39, we had 50 by the time you removed the ones for the accidents and the, and the one that were in storage as replacement missiles. We had about 14, 15 left. Well, what the Air Force did is they contracted with Lockheed Martin. Well, I guess, I guess it was Lockheed Martin by then. Yeah. And they went through and cherry-picked the best first and second stages and took a total of 14, missile, 14 intact missiles out, put them in storage, and used them to launch satellites. So here are airframes that were built in 63. They're being used to launch satellites in the 80s. Now, granted, they took them out, they refurbished them, so it's not really like they just took them out of the hole and launched a, a satellite, but I still think it's pretty impressive. And this is what the refurbished missile looked like. They were all launched, I believe, all launched from Vandenberg. And uh, this is uh, SLV, Space Launch Vehicle. Stage one of B-56 and stage two of B-98. Um, the reason they didn't use Titan One, they had all these 54 Titan 1s plus the airframes they had as replacements, so why didn't they use those for space launch vehicles? Well, in order to launch these Titan 2s at the Cape, they had to modify the uh, pads that were used to launch Titan 1. So they no longer had launch pads at, at the Cape. And then the one set of silos they had at, um, set of three silos they had at Vandenberg, they didn't want to mess with raising these things for the surface and launching them, so they just scrapped the Titan 1s. An interesting story about Titan One, though, is that it reappears as fake Titan Twos. I was trying to locate each of the airframes that were built, and I was able to find all of them. And I had a couple missing, uh, a couple too many. So I called Cape Kennedy because they said they had one. And I said, you know, if you got a Titan Two, uh, what's going on? He said, well, we really don't have a Titan Two. We have two Titan One first stages we put together to make a Titan Two. This is Cape Kennedy. I mean, that'd be like doing that here at the museum. Never happened. So now. What happened, um, do I have a, I don't think, no, I don't have a photograph of that. When the first missile, oh, we'll be talking about when we show the movie. So you get a movie. You're going to visit Tucson? There's my email. Shoot me an email, and I'll make sure you have a tour of the Titan. I don't promise it'll be five hours, but I'll give you a tour of the Titan Missile Museum. You will not forget. But I warn you, as you might have guessed, I love talking about the Titan program. So be ready. Okay, now I'm going to try and get to the film. End of slideshow. Okay. Well, we're going to see if I can figure this out. This movie is 15 minutes. It's, I believe it's worth staying to watch. Uh, Dan, is it on the, on the desktop? Yeah. Oh, there it is. Oh, voice out of the distance. Okay, here we go. I will narrate this briefly as it goes. Whoops. Okay, one more time. Well. Okay, let's pause this because you want to see this. And do I have to turn off PowerPoint? I think, yeah, I think I have to turn off PowerPoint. Close all. Uh, hmm. Close all windows. Because you have one here. That's a good thing I'm not in charge of anything important. <laughs> nope. Well, Dan or whomever, come save the day. Has worked at our trial run, so I really did take care of making this work. 
So what you've got is a variety of short, semi-short, well, okay, some of them are long clips of, of Titan launches. The first one is, in order to test the idea of launching out of a silo, we borrowed information from the Brits and we launched a, a Titan One in a silo launch test facility at Vandenberg. So the first film you'll see is a Titan One coming out of the hole. And it's pretty spectacular. These things were not built to be launched in a silo. Uh, and they did launch them, so it's pretty amazing. Okay, that's, there we go. I'm sorry for the fuzziness, it's the quality of the film. You don't know that's coming out of the silo test facility, but I have another shot that will show you. Well, something's not. Yeah, it's too zoomed. Uh, okay. Can make it smaller. There, just show that one, yeah. Okay, we'll try it again. Rats. It's classified, so it's the government trying to keep me from showing it. I think. <laughs> well, that's too bad. Can I make it? Oh, I'm thinking I could make it smaller. How about if I do that? There. Mark, uh, Dan, let's just use this. That'll be okay. That's, that looks better. And, and you get to see everything on his, uh, on his desktop. Okay, so here's Silver Saddle. That's the, the uh, operation name. Whoa. Yep. Okay, this is real-time launch. This is coming out of the silo. So it came out of the hole pretty quickly. Um, and it's just going to keep... Okay, this is the actual silo test facility here. This is a shot I really wanted you to see because you get a, an idea of what a, a launch would look like. And the reason I know this is uh, Titan 1 is for a variety of reasons, but one, the flame color is a typical a liquid oxygen uh, kerosene flame. It's, it's that bright white instead of an orange or clear flame. Here's N2, first launch, Cape Canaveral, 16 March 62, little periscope things that... Uh, And this is the same airframe, well, modified airframe they used for the Gemini program. And these were the same uh, uh, pads they used for Gemini. I remember as, uh, what was I, probably 12, 13 years old, getting up and going to Mrs. Stokes' uh, color TV and watching the Gemini launches. She was a very patient woman. This is a twang test. They filled the Titan II with water, put it in the, uh, in the um, no, first they put it in the, thrust mount, fill it with water, and then pull the thrust mount to the side and let it go to see if the, um, the uh, thrust mount uh, uh, augmenta uh, spring uh, shock absorbers would work, and it worked fine. N7, this is one of the most uh, used pieces of film that you see it leaving the silo, and, um, and it's, they use it, they use the pictures, and, and it's, Oh, here we go. Most errors never let the missile out of the hole. But if one does, the 
So what happened was it pulled an umbilical. I'll wait for it to go through. And if you notice, it's rotating. It isn't supposed to do that. It's supposed to climb straight out, get to a certain point, rotate, find north, and go and head out to its target. So they knew immediately when this thing was spinning like this that there was a big no-no happening, and it actually ended up blowing up. Um, and it's not true. It was Nothing was done wrong. It was just a badly designed release for the umbilical cable. I talked to the engineers involved, and they uh, they had asked the night before, and the people at Lock in Denver said everything was fine, and it wasn't. <laughs> Yeah, it was as a, it's a BFRC, and I won't tell you what the F stands for, but it's big something red cloud. Okay, N20. I like this one just because it shows a missile trying to save itself. You see a fire in the engine compartment, and the guidance system's trying really hard to keep this flight going, but it's not going to work out. It leans over, and there's a range safety guy punches the button, and pop, and a BFRC with a white, with a big... F white cloud. Now here's the second stage. The RV you see is painted white. For some reason they thought that would help with uh, during a launch if a nuclear weapon went off nearby. They did the tests at the test center in, in uh, Nevada and found that wasn't true, so they stopped painting them white. But the engine bell's broken here, and it's going to come off, and then this opens up and attracts it all the way down to the uh, the water. So this is a little bit long. I came across a lot of uh, 35 millimeter film in my years of researching this, and there was a whole box of it that they were throwing out at Lockheed, and they asked if I wanted it, and I said, sure. Well, it turns out, just before I left for, um, I, I kind of hurt myself in, in the factory, uh, the, their storehouse, but not enough to, to be too worried about. Well, it turned out I ruptured, almost ruptured my Achilles tendon, so... Uh, later in the day when I was playing basketball with my nephews in Colorado Springs, this is up in Littleton, um, I actually did rupture my Achilles tendon. And they were really glad I didn't rupture it on their property. So, so there's the, the next cloud. I would not have sued them because it was my fault, but boy, their eyes got really big. I was very fortunate. I went up to, Lot, to Littleton to do research one year, and the next year I went up, everything I'd looked at had been put in boxes and stored, and they weren't quite sure where, because the Air Force was tired of paying for storage of stuff that had nothing to do with current systems, which you know, makes sense, but luckily I'd been allowed to photocopy of most of it at no expense, because my host had been in charge of the photocopy center at one point, plus they couldn't accept a check. They had no way of taking a personal check and processing it, so, oh well. Okay, just be patient. It's going to hit the water and splash. And then we go on. Splash. There you go. Okay, what's next? Let's see. 22. Oh, this may be the aerial. So I think if this is, no, oh, this is showing down into the silo. 
there's entrained air. When it ignites, it sucks air in and blows it out the uh, exhaust portals. And so you can watch the lights. You can watch debris get sucked down in. It's ignited. The, here are the hold-down bolts. They fire, and then the missile slowly rises out. Now, at Vandenberg, they had to repair the silos. Not all that. There's the entrained material. This is slow-mo, so this stuff's shooting down in the silo. Um, at Vandenberg, they had to refurbish the silos so they could reuse them again. And that actually was difficult. The Soviets had weapons that they could reinstall um, missiles into, but we never did, at least with Titan. And I don't think they planned to do it with Minuteman. I have versions of this where you can actually see the explosive, explosive bolts fire. And uh, I just think this is cool. I don't, I'm not sure why, but... This is actually physically about the distance between the nose cap of the silo closure door and the um, silo itself. So as I was saying, if you had a silo closure door with six feet of debris and it started to move, you'd have that, that angle of repose material would slide into the silo and damage it. I'm surprised you can build a camera that can handle getting hosed by a, a multi-thousand dollar, thousand degree flame. Now, when they did these launches early on, you could be actually pretty close. I was, a, I was invited to a successful launch of the SLV system, and I, want, I told them, I'll sign whatever. I want to be up close, and we were miles away. The missile was about this big, and it was cool, but nothing as cool as being right near, near to it. Okay, now, which? Oh, this is real time. That's a launch. That's a real deal. So if this thing's going to launch and come out, that's what's going to happen. Okay, maybe this is the aerial. I have a shot where there's a helicopter looking at, here we are. So some lucky helicopter crew got to sit out there and watch this thing rise up and hope it didn't come toward them. <laughs> I don't know if you, anybody saw the movie The Day, I think it was called The Day After. It's in the 70s. Uh, my wife and I lived in Tucson at the time, and we always figured if something happened, we'd see these plumes, and then we'd run out, get on our roof and lawn chairs and get an atomic tan, and then, <laughs> then be gone. So I just never saw the point of uh, we lived in, in Northern California near Travis Air Force Base and everybody's digging those fallout shelters. And it just even at that age, it occurred to me there wouldn't be a whole lot left. So why would I want to survive it? I guess as an eight year old, that's not what you're supposed to be thinking about. But during the Gemini program, they used uh, phantom jets to fly along, not right next to the missile, but fly up to get pictures for uh, CBS. N25. What's the N25? Hmm. Oh, oh. This, oh, staging. This is great. I'm going to have to... Well, I won't pause it. Okay, staging. Stage two camera looking back to stage one trans stage. It blows open. They had to reinforce it to stop that from happening. Then they have a shot coming this way at stage two from stage one. And the stage two missile is a Titan one second stage. And you'll see that in a minute because I'll point it out. So this is over the Cape, and this is the kind of thing a Gemini astronaut might have seen. Uh, this is reentry film. If you look carefully, you can see these. This is the stage two on the reentry vehicle right here, and it separates into two parts. I, yeah, it's, you, yeah, that's staging right, uh, separation right there. Yeah, I mean, you have to believe me, this is happening. But I ran across this, and for the longest time, I had no idea what it could possibly be. And then we finally figured out that's what it had to be. And it makes sense in the timestamp. I think it's pretty cool. From, I think this is actually from Vandenberg. 
that they can take a photograph like that. I mean, this is back in the, what, the 60s. So, I mean, now it's probably do it with your cell phone. But I thought that was an interceptor. That's a star because it's, it's tracking these two so the stars are sweeping through the field. I was waiting for that thing to curve over and hit, but it never did. Okay, what's this, N31? Uh, maybe this is the one I was thinking about. No, oh, reentry. Cool. Second stage coming in alongside the first stage, and as you can see, it starts to disintegrate, and the, the actual Aubrey picks up and takes off. They show this, I believe in this film, they show it splashing into the lagoon. Um, when Minutemen were coming into the Anahuaytoc uh, target area, people would take cover. Um, all of the Titan sites, all the Titan missiles would actually, the, the RBs hit in the water, so they weren't quite as worried. One uh, Minuteman airframe hit a, a Navy storage shed. But the Titan II crew still waits for the command to launch. Roger, very good. Captain, this is a uh, 10-day on alert. Think we'll get the word to launch today? Well, this is a no-notice launch, so I expect that's just what we'll get, no notice. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The officers did carry sidearms. These guys are up having their box lunch. The dress white, uh, the white uniforms were gotten rid of fairly early in the program. I love the music. I think that's really great. Part two, Foxtrot Tango. Part three, Uniform. Break, breathing. Authentication is Bravo. As with all sax weapons, positive control with no margin for error is rigorously exercised. The commander cross-checks the message to launch. Verify part three. Verify. So you have the deputy missile, con uh, missile combat crew commander here, deputy combat crew commander here. They're separated so they can't turn the, switch, the keys at the same time by themselves. Then you have the MSAT and MFT, missile facilities technician, missile systems technician. These are plug valves to shut the various valves that need to be shut in case there's a nearby hit. This is the old system. They used to have the con they moved the console to the front. This music is just great. That's real time. Here it is. Okay, there's the destruction of the trans state of the interstate. One, two, three, eulage rockets that was used on a Titan one second stage to drive the propellants back to the pumps so they would get into the engine. So that's this is totally wrong, which is probably only important to me, but that's the way it Some goes. 30 minutes after launch, the re-entry vehicles flashing down on Here we go. thousands of miles away proves that SAC's primary deterrent weapon is effective and the crews are proficient. In the future, should these weapons ever be fired in anger, the men and the missiles will be ready.
Oh, that's me. You don't get any more pictures. Okay, uh, that's basically my presentation. I really appreciate your patience and listening. And if you have any questions, I guess they're supposed to be passed up, and I'll try and answer them.